Welcome to the Dwell Church Sermon Archive. Dwell is a family defined by the love of God and committed to giving it away. Here is this week's message. I want to start today by talking about this idea, like, have you ever been in a place where you, like, tour stuff? Like, you tour a place that makes things, like a factory, I think like a brewery tour, distillery or something like that, or a candy factory? Has anybody ever been to Hammond's? Am I the only, like, nerdy guy in our church? Okay, we got some Hammond's fans, good. Four of us, right, in, like, uh, next to the greatest candy factory ever. Uh, you can do, like, a little candy tour thing, and you walk through there. And I've noticed on these tours, and this is true on every type of tour that you make where they make something, they're always, like, really proud of what they make, which is good. We want them to do that. But they're always kind of, like, bragging and throwing shade on other people that make them, you know? They're like, yeah, in our candy, we use a blend of turbinado sugar and confectioner's sugar to make our hard candy. That's what provides the greatest clarity. And we're like, bro, we don't care. Like, we're just waiting for the candy at the end, you know? I'm also kind of looking for, like, little short orange dudes or to swim in a chocolate river, right? Like, that is why I am here. I am not here to watch you sort of debate the ins and outs of the best type of sugar. Some of that uh, Willy Wonka joke there took a second. It was, like, slowly blossoming in people's minds, which was delightful, right? It's a little bit like what our passage is today. Jesus is up here and he's like debating with these Pharisees about the Sabbath and they're like getting into like the niche and the inside and we're kind of like, I don't know, man. I don't know if I really, really care about this kind of stuff. And I think the problem with that and the real like reason why we should probably care is because we have in many ways forgotten the Sabbath. So instead, when we read and we hear about, like, you know, the Pharisees going to Jesus and his disciples, and he says, and they say, like, do you really think it's okay for you guys to, like, pluck grain on the Sabbath? We're like, I'm not sure that this is a debate that I'm really interested in, right? They're like, oh, our distillery, our bourbon is made with 51% buckwheat. And you're like, I don't really know anything about this. That's what this kind of feels like, right? They're like, oh, should you eat grain? Should you not eat grain? Are you plucking it? Is that technically work? Is that not technically work? And then we, in 2023 in America, are like, I'm not sure that this has any bearing whatsoever on my life. And I think the reason why we're not really bothered by this debate, at least not as much as Matthew, who wrote this down, Jesus, or the Pharisees, who were a part of this story, are worried about is because we have largely forgotten the Sabbath. We as American Christians living in 2023 have really neglected the Sabbath. There's really no parallel to how badly we have forgotten and neglected the Sabbath. None in all of Christianity that I can really think of. Because there's so many other things that like God tells us to do if we're followers of Jesus and we say, yes, I want to do that. Nobody's like, I do that most of the time, but every once in a while I murder a few people. Like not a lot. It's not a big deal, right? Like it just murders some. And yet there in the Ten Commandments says do not murder. And we're like, yes, I'm not going to do that and it says keep the sabbath and we're like maybe right like sometimes if i if i don't have anything better to do that's a really weird and troubling thing to me it's a strange idea the difficult thing in talking about this today is that what we're looking at is these pharisees who had taken this beautiful rule that god had given to us and they had taken it way too far and made it into something that it wasn't supposed to be and then we come to the debate And we're like trying to understand what they're talking about. But it's basically almost like the Pharisees heard that there was like a 55 mile an hour speed limit. And they were like, if you drive over 40, you're probably breaking the law. You're doing the wrong thing. You're unethical. And we come into the conversation. We're like, wait, was there a sign that I missed somewhere? Was I supposed to not be speeding here? Like what's going on, right? So here's what I'm going to invite you to do today. 
I'm going to invite you, in order for us to understand what the Pharisees and Jesus are actually arguing about, we're going to have to go way back, and we're going to like dive into Sabbath like completely, looking at the history of it. We've got to completely clean slate this thing. We've got to start at the beginning to get our heads wrapped around what the Sabbath is, because here is what you'll find on the other side, which is what Jesus is pushing for here. The Sabbath is actually a rule of freedom, a rule of freedom a binding that frees you from slavery to work on work and burnout a limitation that actually increases your capacity and reduces your other limits a restriction that unrestricts your ability to be fully human a rule that brings about freedom in your life don't you want that i mean i imagine from knowing you guys and knowing myself we all come in here a little bit like burdened by the world we all come like slightly crushed like it's been a long and hard week very often. Do you ever get in this mode where it's like hard to relax your grip on life, where you feel like if you're not holding on to everything tight enough, it's all just going to spiral madly out of control? Do you ever find yourself anxious about the amount of control that you actually have over your life? The Sabbath is a rule and an antidote for that. The Sabbath might be just what you need today. So here's what we're going to do. We're going to look at the Sabbath in three parts, a history of the Sabbath, uh, the OG Sabbath, the time the Sabbath was written in stone and the Sabbath found beautiful. So first off, let's start with the OG Sabbath. Man, it is blazing hot in here. I'm sorry, you guys. If you fall asleep, that's completely okay. I think that's an acceptable Sabbath task. I might fall asleep while I'm up here. And we have nine pages to go today, so I hope that you are ready. This is going to be a long one, but it's going to be a good one if you can stay through to the end. The first ha Sabbath happened in the first week of the earth and was taken by the first being that ever existed. Let that sink in for a moment. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. All that, you get it, you probably heard it before. He made the earth and the plants and the animals and the humans, and then Genesis 2 happens, and Genesis 2, 1 through 3 says this, Thus the heavens and the earth were finished and all the host of them. And on the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy because on it God rested from all of his work that he had done in creation. Now aside from the fact that it wrote he had done at least 17 times in that short passage, did you notice what was happening there? God is taking a break. Now I want you to like wrap your mind around that. He was on a roll. He had just accomplished more than any other person or being had ever accomplished, right? He had just like had this like creative fury. He was in flow state, if you know what that's about. Uh, he was like, you know, in the zone. The muse had descended. He was making all this stuff. And then he just stops. He just stops at some point. Now, he could have worked on that seventh day, and who knows what would have happened if he would have, right? Probably aliens. I know what you're thinking. Maybe non-Newtonian matter. That'd be cool, right? There's like one person that's interested in aliens. That's what would have happened on the seventh day. Maybe a tree that grows sushi. We don't really know, and we'll never know. He got to a place, though, after day six where he said, hey, this is good. I think I'm going to take a rest. But observant viewers and readers and hearers will think to themselves, wait, does God need a nap? Like, does the guy who created the entire heavens and the earth just by speaking into existence really, like, get tired? That doesn't make much sense. So we have to come up with another solution, right? What was he doing? He was showing us something. Showing us something important. Modeling for us something that we would need to know. And if you've read these first few chapters of Genesis, they are telling you everything that you need to know about the world and the way that it operates, which tells us that he wanted his whole creation to know that six days was plenty, 
that he built a system in a world that would operate on six days but have seven. Meaning that God built the world to run on seven-sixths abundance. Now, I'm not a math guy, so uh, don't bother me too much about that uh, fraction there. I don't know how that really works. But here's what I want you to think about. God made the world to operate best in a system where you only work for your needs six days, but you get seven days worth of needs fulfilled. Six days input, seven days output. Which is a pretty cool economy, I think. Have you noticed this practically? Like, I know that none of us are subsistence farmers, right? Like, maybe out there on Stricker Farms at the edge of the world, maybe they do it. But uh, for most of us, we are not, like, just living off the land. But this is very much, I think, as I best I understand it, this is kind of how it works, right? Like, you can put in six days' worth of work and get seven days' worth of output. That something about the world and nature in general, it is generous enough uh, to create that kind of a yield, Right, and it's kind of like difficult to wrap your mind around. The only like actual modern day, according to my life, kind of parallel I have is I have friends that grow squash, and I'm sorry, some of you might be in this room. If you grow squash in the city of Denver, you cannot eat it all, right? Like it is just gonna keep on coming. Your friends and neighbors, you're shoving zucchinis in their hand every time you come over. You're like, look, it's a gift, and you come over with a basket of squash. I mean, it's just producing so, so very much. Now there's a big reason, as you're sitting here processing and trying to decide whether or not this is true, right? You're thinking to yourself, Josh said it's a seven-six abundance. Does the world really operate that way? You're probably leaning towards no, right? You're probably thinking like, that doesn't make much sense. I never have enough stuff. If I may, take just a little short digression to the side as to why that may be. I believe that this world has indoctrinated all of us to live in a world of scarcity, Like, whether you want to believe it or not, I know we all think we're smarter than everyone else. No one's tricked us into thinking anything. I'm the only free thinker in the room, right? Like, we all believe that. Uh, And one of you, I guess, is. I don't know. Like, the odds are against us all to be that person as much as we think we are. This world has caused you to believe that there is not enough for everybody. So think about that. (laughs) That was the cute little sound. Think about that. Seven, six abundance. If that's the way that God made it, then how in the world have we gotten to a place where there is not enough for everybody? Well, I believe more than there's just this idea that there's not enough for everyone, like not enough food to feed everyone or enough money to go around, it's because in more ways than that, we actually distribute that money and food poorly. The Organization for Economic Cooperation and Development estimates that 5% of the world's people own 72% of the world's wealth. Now, I promise I am not going down some socialist or communist rant. I know we have some capitalist evangelists here in the, in the congregation today, so I'm not going to go down that path. I am not promoting, you know, some sort of, like, restructure and anarchy. I don't even know anything about that. What I am going to say is that our wealth could be so poorly distributed that we wouldn't know if we had an abundance. Like, does that make sense? That the world could actually be running on seven-sixths of abundance, and we have set up systems in the world that makes us believe that we have to scrounge and fight for every little piece that we have. Wouldn't such a world benefit its own system if it continually told you, who is probably part of that 5%, that you better get yours or it is going to be gone? I have no way to fix this, and it's not really what we're talking about today. I'm just trying to tear down some of the structures that are pushing so hard for you to believe that you need to work seven days a week. The world is working hard to push that idea on you. 
And it very simply just may not be true. I'm here to tell you that the way that God set it all up was a seven-sixths world. And if it doesn't work that way, it's on us, not on the way that God created it. And in a seven-sixths world, to work on the seventh is a result of either greed or insanity. If what I'm saying is true and the creator of the world made it to operate to where you work for six days and rest on one, to work on that extra day means that you are either being greedy or you are being slightly insane. Greed because you want more than you deserve. Someone says all you, can, all you can have or all you need can be found in six days and you say, cool, I'll work seven. That means you're trying to get more than you actually need. That means you're trying to get more than your fair share. Or it's insanity because many of us have been outright deluded to not see the reality of the world as God created it, that it actually operates this way. To use a modern phrase, we actually gaslight ourselves into believing that the world will fall apart if we don't keep it in control for seven days a week. Instead, God showed us how we are to react to a seven-sixths world, which is simply to rest. A good Sabbath especially if you're taking notes, you're trying to catalog what a good Sabbath actually looks like. A good Sabbath is partially defined by rest. Don't work. Take a break. That's what the rule that we're talking about today is all debating, right? The Pharisees weren't evil, right? They weren't just like terrible, like enemies of God. I mean, no, it's like easier to think of like Jesus as a white hat and they're wearing a black hat. They're like bad guys. They were trying to serve God. They just took it too far. They had taken something that was supposed to be beautiful and turned it into a crushing rule. But that is why they are arguing about this grain, right? They say, why do your Pharisees pick this grain? Or why do your disciples pick this grain? Why are they trying to work on the Sabbath? Now we could get into the ins and outs of like whether or not shelling a peanut is work on the Sabbath, but I don't think that's what it's all about. But what they're trying to grapple with is this idea that God told them, do not work on this day. And it appears that Jesus' disciples were doing some sort of work. They went too far, but they weren't necessarily wrong. They missed the spirit of the rule, not the rule itself, right? Like the rule itself is what they were like uh, supposed to be upholding, but they missed out on the actual spirit of it, which is simply to not work. If the world works on a 7-6 abundance and a 7-6 schedule, then so should you. All right, I'm not going to say seven-sixths again. Okay, cool. So uh, next up, the Sabbath written in stone. Here we go. Once upon a time, God decided it was time to make it official with his people, kind of a DTR, if you will. He had a covenant with Noah and with Abraham, but he hadn't yet told them what was important if they were to be his people. So he decided to tell them uh, right after he took them out of Egypt led them on, they were on their way to the promised land, and he told them how they were to be his people, and he took his own finger, and he carved it into pieces of stone for them to see, and to have, and to touch, and to never lose, and he said this in Exodus 20, 8 through 11, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male servant or your female servant or your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them and rested on the seventh day. Therefore, the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Now, if you're churchy or you just happen to be in and out of the courthouse a lot, you know that these are the Ten Commandments, right? Uh, number four, if you like. It's a collection of some of the oldest known law codes that are ever in existence. And God, having rescued his people out of Egypt and needing to prepare them to be the people to live in his promised land, created these ten rules and said that they were the most important. 
So it starts with like, keep me as your God. Don't make up idols and worship them, that kind of stuff. It goes on like, don't murder me. Like, trust me, you'll be happier that way. Don't sleep with each other's wives, that kind of stuff, right? And by the way, in between these things that make you a holy person and make you a good person, don't work on one day, okay? It's strange. It's always struck me as strange. Then in the middle of these 10 rules that tell them how to be a society and tell them how to operate just as people, one of them is reserved for the Sabbath. Like, let's say that one day you have a kid. Maybe you, like, you know you're not going to be around for much longer. It's kind of like, let's, let's get into like a lifetime movie kind of scenario, right? Like, oh, man, I'm dying. I'm not going to make it. So you get this video camera, and you're like, okay, I don't know why a video camera. How old is that reference? So anyway, you video yourself on your phone like a normal human, and you say, I've got only got 10 things to be able to pass down to you. I've only got 10 things to say. I know you're going to miss me one day. These are the 10 things. What are you going to teach them, right? What are you going to say? Is one of the things going to be like, hey, Take one day off a week? That's so strange. I don't think it would be for me. And yet here, God teaching his people how to live, this is one of the things that he says. Look at the word here, present here in Genesis. It says in verse 8, Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Keep it holy. Now think about that phrase. I know it sounds like something that a chaperone at a Christian prom would say. Like, y'all keep it holy now, right? Like something like that. But think about it for a minute. What is he actually saying there? We've lost the meaning of this word in some ways. Holy, as found in scripture, can mean a lot of different things. It's sort of a bunch of different words rolled into one. It's simultaneously sacred and consecrated and sanctified. I know those are all kind of big scary words. But it mostly means set aside for the use of the Lord. In fact, the language kind of comes around something that you might use in like a worship kind of setting. So back then when they were making sacrifices, if you were to make something holy, if you were to sanctify it, as this phrase sort of says, then you're like taking something that would just be a normal spoon and then taking it and making it something set aside for the use of the Lord in the tabernacle. You are making it holy. And that's the same thing that God tells us to do with this day. Make it holy. Set it aside for the use of the Lord. God is calling you to set aside the Sabbath as for the Lord, to make it sacred, to consecrate it, to make it holy as a day set aside for him. Which is why Jesus was so confused when the Pharisees came to him and they're like, you're not doing Sabbath right. Like, I want you to just wrap your mind around this. Put yourself in Jesus' shoes as he responds this way. Matthew 12, 6 through 8. He says, I tell you, something greater than the temple is here. And if you had known what this means, I desire mercy, not sacrifice, you would not have condemned the guiltless. For the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. I think we miss out on the saltiness of Jesus in most of our translations. Like he's just a, he's kind of pushing on him a little bit here. Maybe I'll write like a salty Jesus translation. I don't know if that would be good or not, but I think in this case it would be helpful, right? Jesus says, excuse me, like you're all worried about the temple. You guys think that's big and important, right? Like that pile of bricks ain't got nothing on me. That is a place to worship me, and this is my day. Like think about that. They're sitting there talking to God incarnate, and they're like, sorry, so you don't know about the Sabbath? And he's like, this is a day set aside for me. I'm the Lord of the Sabbath. The Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. I made all of this. I gave you everything that you have, and I asked for one day, one single day, and now you're going to come tell me I'm doing it wrong? The disciples would be sitting back like, sheesh. Sorry, I know that's an old reference now. Anyway, uh, I think Jesus here is clapping back at them pretty hard. 
since we aren't Jesus and the Sabbath isn't about us, it should remind us that we are to keep it holy by making it about him. Keeping the Sabbath holy means making it about Jesus. Now listen, we could talk about all of the benefits of not working and enjoying the Sabbath and about your mental health and your work-life balance all day. Those are good things. But if we're not making it about him, it's not really a Sabbath, right? Then it's just a day off. And a day off is a good thing. And I think actually all of those things that we see, and if you're reading like people who are talking about living a healthy lifestyle, like not burning out of like psychological and mental health, then they're probably telling you something like, hey, one day a week is probably really good for your brain and for your body to relax and to de-stress. Those are good things, but they are extra benefits of the Sabbath. They are not the Sabbath themselves. They are blessings that Jesus gives us as a result of the Sabbath. So how do we do it? How do we make a day about Jesus? How do we set aside a day unto the Lord? Another thing that a good Sabbath is defined by is worship. And when I say worship, I'm not just saying singing songs. That's a lot of the times the way that we use it in modern day language. But I think instead, worship is actually praising God for who he is. It's reflecting on how good and perfect God is through the things that you do. And so we do that through singing, but we also do that through other elements of our gathering, of uh, sing, or reading scripture together, of praying together, of the taking of communion. All of those are elements of worship. And you don't even have to be in a worship gathering to actually be worshiping. I believe that a good Sabbath does involve worshiping God, and if possible, worshiping God alongside the people of God. That's why I Sabbath on Sunday. Now, I'm going to get into a really niche debate here, but I hope it's helpful for all of us. There are lots of people that don't Sabbath on Sunday, which is fine. I don't think there's any sort of, like, legal ramification there, right? Like, I don't think God's going to come down and be like, sorry, it's Tuesday. You're doing this wrong. I don't think that's how it works. But here's why I justify Sabbathing on Sunday. Some pastors actually do it differently. Because for me, waking up early on a Sunday, earlier than the rest of the week, spending the time in word and prayer for the day, coming here for four hours while I take communion, hearing the word, singing the word, making my heart love Jesus alongside others trying to do the same, like, that is a sweet spot for me. So I want you to notice something here. A Sunday worship gathering is not a Sabbath. It's not like you just come in here and check the box of like, that's the only way to do Sabbath. That's not what I'm saying. But what I am saying is all the things that make a Sabbath a good Sabbath are built into what we do here every Sunday. Side note, again, as a part of a niche debate as to whether pastors should Sabbath on Sunday or another day, I think Jesus is at least hitting, hinting at this when he reminds the priests that they work on Sabbath and it's a good thing. He says in Matthew 12, 5, or have you not read the law on how the Sabbath, the priest in the temple profane the Sabbath and are guilty? The priests are actually doing the work of God on the Sabbath and are guiltless because of it. So for all of you other like professional pastors in the room, it's okay and maybe even a good thing for you to Sabbath on Sunday. For all the rest of you amateur Christians, that's terrible language, I'm just messing with you. You know what I'm trying to say though, right? Like for those of you guys who don't get paid to do this kind of thing or don't make it part of your life, maybe if you're like volunteering, I don't know, like maybe in like dwell kids, for instance, you're no more missing out on the Sabbath than a priest bringing an offering to the table is. It's very easy for us to get into a mode where we think that when we have to serve even at church, whenever we have to do something good that we're actually missing out on the Sabbath, and that is not the case. It's actually a way of dedicating the day to the Lord. But, side debate over. 
If you're another pastor in the room and you want to fight me about Sabbath on Sunday, come talk to me afterwards, okay? So, uh, keeping it holy has to mean more than attending or even serving at a worship gathering. Here's what I want you to think about it like. Think about it like a birthday for your beloved, whether that's your husband, your wife, your friend, your child, your cat maybe, I don't know, right? Uh, You wake up to this person or animal, whatever it is, you wake up and you look them in the eye and you say to them, This day is all about you. What can we do to make this day all about you? What can we do to make this day special? What can I do to show you that you matter to me and that this day is important to me because it is all about you? In fact, if you think about it, every Sabbath is Jesus' birthday. Do you know why uh, Jewish people celebrate Sabbath on Saturday and Christians celebrate it on Sunday? It's because sometime in the early history of the church, they shifted it to that day because that was the day that they recognized Jesus coming back from the dead. That he dies on a Friday, he rises on a Sunday, and so that is now the beginning of the week. That is now our day set aside for the Lord. And so more than just thinking about this like Jesus' birthday, this is Jesus' rebirthday, the day of his resurrection. So the best way to worship him is to treat it as if it was Jesus' birthday. Get him some cake, enjoy him, whatever that looks like for you. One more cool thing is we're talking about keeping it holy. When you're making the Sabbath holy, God is actually making you holy. When you're making the Sabbath holy, God is actually making you holy. Exodus 31, 12 through 13 says this, And the Lord said to Moses, You are to speak to the people of Israel and say, above all, you shall keep my Sabbaths. For this is a sign between me and you throughout your generations that you may know that I, the Lord, sanctify you. Those last two words are the exact same words uh, that God would use to say, keep the Sabbath holy. Except for now, it's not the Sabbath that is being kept holy, it is you. I, the Lord, sanctify you. God is promising that you, that if you observe the Sabbath and keep the Sabbath, that he will make you holy. God is saying that keeping the Sabbath holy will allow him to keep you holy. Set it aside for me, he's saying, and I will set you aside for myself. That's a beautiful thing. Next, we finally get to Jesus. The Sabbath found beautiful. Finally, we get to Jesus, and I get to start preaching. So all of that was kind of preamble. I hope you're ready. That was just the intro. Uh, The rest of the sermon will be commensurately long, okay? So, uh, yeah, I hope you took your nap already, because now we are ready to finally get into it, okay? I've already talked a little bit about the Pharisees being mad that the disciples were picking grain on the Sabbath. They were plucking it and eating it, which sounds kind of crazy, right? Then Jesus takes it a step further, and he actually heals a guy. We see this in verse 9 through 13. He went on from there and entered their synagogue, and a man was there with a withered hand, and they asked him, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath, so that they might accuse him? He said to them, which one of you has a sheep? If it falls into a pit on the Sabbath, will not take hold of it and lift it out? Or how much more, or of how much more value is a man than a sheep? So it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. Then he said to the man, stretch out your hand. And the man stretched it out and was restored healthy like the other. He throws this right in their faces. Again, this is Josh's salty Jesus version. He says, why don't you tell this guy with the withered hand that you can't heal him on the Sabbath? 
right? This guy's like standing right there. He's looking at the Pharisees. He's like, you don't want me to, so you guys are saying I can't, this guy with the withered hand, I could, I could do it if I just spoke it into existence. I could heal this guy. And they're like, no, no, we don't want that. That's not good. You'd be working, right? Jesus here is clapping back at them again. And then there's this little zinger. There's one here in uh, Matthew, and then there's also another one here in Mark that is going to tell us our last truth about the Sabbath. He says here in Matthew in verse 7, And if you had known what this means, I desire mercy and not sacrifice, you would not have condemned the guiltless. But in the same story from Mark's gospel, he says this, And he said to them, The Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. Both of those statements are kind of equally as cryptic to us, right? Now, in classic Matthew fashion, he's talking about the Old Testament. He loves talking about the Old Testament and the way that it's fulfilled in Jesus. And so, of course, he would be a little fixated when Jesus quotes the Old Testament. So I want you to imagine this, that the sources that are giving us the New Testament are copying down the story of Jesus. It's not so much that they disagree, but they are human beings just like you and me. And so they get fixated and attached to different things. Matthew here is saying, hey, the Old Testament is really important. Jesus is the fulfillment of that. And so when he quotes the Old Testament, that's what Matthew sketches down, right? Like that's what he writes down in his telling. Mark in his telling says something different. He remembered that Jesus said the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. It was made for a man. That's what Jesus is saying here. I think what this tells us is that there's something about the Sabbath when you're doing it right that is more a gift than a restriction. If Sabbath was made for man and not man for the Sabbath, then it is a gift and it is a present to you. We get too hung up on it when we think about it as a rule and a restriction. We think about it as a system. We think about it as a checklist, like we're missing out on what the Sabbath is. It was actually made to make your life better. It's a weekly and living manifestation of what Brian was talking about last week when he said that my yoke is easy, my burden is light. A good Sabbath is an easy yoke and a light burden. It sits on you and it restricts your movement like a yoke. But somehow it's easy and light. In short, it is good. It's the last thing that a good Sabbath is defined by. Goodness. Jesus' final statement in the debate with the Pharisees is that it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. Now this is not just like nice things. This is good with a capital G. We're talking about the same type of good that God is talking about when he is making the world, that type of good. He made this and said it was good. He made that and said it was good. And at the end of the day, more important than not working or going to church or whatever, the Sabbath ought to be about goodness, to do good, to be good, to enjoy good. And if the Sabbath was made for man, then this goodness ought to fill up our Sabbaths. Now, I used to think about this as some sort of argument for, like, Christian, you know, Sabbath hedonism or something. Uh, like, just doing whatever it is that you want to do, just sort of, like, self-indulgent. Like, do whatever makes you happy as much as you can. In fact, there's this Mardi Gras song called, like, Do What You Wanna, right? Like, so they say, Do What You Wanna. And it's like, you know, everybody, like, throws down and goes nuts, right? But that is good. It's a good thing. But it's only little g good. That's what I want you to think about. I don't want to go like to Dr. Seuss, you know, little g, big g, good kind of thing. But I want you to just imagine like there are things in life that are little g, good. And there are things in life that are capital G, good.
That was a good sound. I appreciate that. I normally don't get distracted, but that was like full-on alarm. I was scared we were all dying. Uh, anyway, I don't think that we are, because it's the Sabbath, and it's good. Now, doing what you want to is only ever going to be little g good. Like, just self-indulgence for its own sake is only ever going to be little g good. I used to think that the Sabbath was all about this, right? Like, Jesus wants me to be happy. This is a day to be happy. I'm going to be happy, right? So what I would do is I'd go home. I'd unbutton the pants. Don't judge me. It happens, all right? I don't know what kind of superhuman, you know, supermodel you need to be to where that's not the more comfortable way to lay on a couch, but I am not there. So unbutton the pants. Uh, you've got like a bag of chips just resting on your belly, right? You're just sitting there like doing this. Uh, you're playing video games and you are sinking so deeply into the couch that you have somehow merged to become part of it, right? Now that is good. It's not big G good, but it's little G good, all right? It feels nice. It feels fine. I've had plenty of Sabbaths like that. Where you said, church, check. Email silence, check, right? So there you got worship and not, and, uh, not working, cool. Both of those, out of the way, check. Leftover cake, eaten straight from the platter, check. It's fine, but it's not big G good. It's okay. No, I think a big G good Sabbath is somehow connecting your soul to the goodness that God and his goodness gives us the grace to experience here on earth. Now I'm going to read that again because it was a bonkers sentence. It is a good Sabbath is connecting your soul to the goodness that God in his goodness gives us grace to experience here on earth. It's difficult, difficult to define. Let me tell you about some of the capital G Sabbaths that I've had. A capital G good Sabbath that I've had were days when Sarah and I would go on a long walk in the neighborhood and it felt like golden hour lasted for six hours somehow. A capital G good Sabbath is when Evie and I can build a blanket fort. She gets to watch Goofy Movie for the first time ever. Yes, Goofy Movie is an example of the common grace of God, but I won't get into that. It is big G good. A good Sabbath is going on a solo hike looking at different trees and wondering if God put any of those there for me just to appreciate in this moment. A good Sabbath is sitting in the backyard with good friends, sharing a meal, talking about life. A good Sabbath, I remember one that was helping a friend push a car down the street. It's a long story, but even though it's parts of it felt like work, it was still good. A good Sabbath is working in your garage on a handmade present that you're going to give to your dad at Christmas. I don't really know how to define the difference in this capital G and little g, but I think you get what I'm getting at, right? Here's the, here's the heart of it. Here's the difference in self-indulgence and enjoying goodness. A Sabbath that is little g good worships a God that is little g good. And that's you and me. If we're not worshiping the true God of the universe, then we're worshiping something and someone else. And so if it is just a day of self-indulgence, it is a celebration and a worship of temporary pleasures that we have in our life. It is basically self-worship. And a Sabbath that is big G good is one that worships a big G God. And it is an ecstatic praise of what he has given to us. It is a prayer of gratitude actually lived out through our lives. 
It is a celebration of everything that is big G good that he has given to you and to me. I want to take one more minute and just wrap this thing up as we talk about the quiet magic of Jesus. Matthew and his idea of Jesus being the fulfillment of the Old Testament reminds us of this from Isaiah 42. This is the end of our passage today. It was originally a prophecy for the nation of Israel, and then Jesus comes along. So the nation of Israel was supposed to be these things, but they didn't really live up to that. And so Matthew shows us that it was actually all about Jesus all this time. Israel didn't live up. Jesus shows us the true and perfect picture. And he makes one small change to actually bring this to light. This is kind of like Bible nerding out, if I can, for a minute. And going from Hebrew and Isaiah to Greek in the New Testament, he changes a phrase from with whom, or changes it from whom my soul delights to with whom my soul is well pleased, which is the exact same language, if you remember a few weeks ago, a long time ago now, the baptism of Jesus, when a voice from heaven speaks out from heaven, it says, this is my son with whom my soul is well pleased. So in verse 18, it says this. This is from Isaiah, now quoted in Matthew. Behold, my servant whom I have chosen, my beloved with whom my soul is well pleased. I will put my spirit upon him, and he will proclaim justice to the Gentiles. He will not quarrel or cry aloud, nor will anyone hear his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break, and a smoldering wick he will not quench, till he brings justice to victory, and in his name the Gentiles will hope. So this Jesus that Matthew is talking about, he's reminding us that he's not going to cry aloud or cause a ruckus in the streets. Did you notice this imagery here? He's not even going to like break plants as he's walking over them. A smoldering wick of a candle, he'll walk by and not even blow out. Until the day when Jesus comes back and when justice is made victorious. And on that day, that V-Day, that victory day, when the whole world, both Jew and Gentile alike, will see that justice has finally been made the victor, that's when Jesus is going to make some noise. I believe and I hope, I trust in that one day coming true. The question is, why would Matthew put it right here? Tucked into these stories about healings and Jesus correcting people on the Sabbath, Matthew reminds us about the quiet and magical way that he works. The way of Jesus is quiet magic. When Jesus is doing his thing, you might not even notice When Jesus is moving, a flickering candle doesn't get blown out. There's not a huge crowd in the streets. But one day, what is right is going to be made true. One day, good is going to be put in charge. One day, justice is going to triumph over evil. And we're living in that kind of in-between. And if I may, I believe that our quiet and simple act of obedience on the Sabbath, actually keeping the Sabbath, That when we come to him in rest and enjoyment, it's not going to be like outwardly flashy. Like nobody's going to be like, that guy Sabbaths really well. He's really impressive. It's not going to be like this huge deal. When we come to him and observe like three things, right? Like if we just set it aside for him, if we actually don't do work, if we actually uh, find a way to enjoy big G goodness on that day, it's not going to be splashy. It's not going to be flashy. It's not going to be attractive. But I believe that if this is in fact the way that Jesus works, He moves quietly. You might not even notice it. 
I believe as you enjoy and observe Sabbath, it's not going to immediately fix every problem that you have. It's not going to change everything about you. Your first true, good, real Sabbath is not going to be explosive and noisy. But somehow, slowly, over time, and quietly, and probably without you even noticing, one day, you wake up and realize that Jesus has been working. And in that day, in that day, you will be changed. Now, I don't want to tell you how, because I don't want to spoil it. I want to just end today by praying that somehow it might be so in our lives. Would you pray with me? Thanks for listening. We hope it brought you closer to Jesus and more in touch with the world around you. Being a Christian in today's culture can be hard. Fortunately, he gives us the gift of community through his church. So we would love to invite you to join us for one of our Sunday morning gatherings or for one of our weekly small groups. All the details you need can be found on our website, dwelldenver.org.